Welcome to Water on the Wireless, a podcast by McPherson Media Group in conjunction with Country News. Well, this is Jeff Adams uh, speaking uh, from Country News, and I wanted to welcome uh, today Dr. Erin O'Donnell. Uh, she's a water law and policy specialist focusing on water markets, environmental flows, and water governance. Uh, currently with the Law School uh, of Melbourne University. Um, welcome, Dr O'Donnell. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. Um, the uh, ACCC, uh, the, the, the printing presses in that place has must have been running sort of overtime in the last, uh, last few weeks. They've been just produced a mammoth 540-page report on water markets in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um we were a bit uh, flummoxed when we got that. It's huge, uh, and it's got a lot of detail in it. I'm just wondering whether does this um, is this common to get these large reports by uh, semi-government authorities on the water um, industry. So, uh, unfortunately, the short answer is yes. Um, it's it is quite common, and I feel like it's probably increasingly common. So, if we think about the last. 20 or 30 years of basically ongoing water reform in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, it is a period of time that has been punctuated by very large um, tomes of reports prepared by various government and, and independent organisations. And I think it's, it's partly to do with the nature of water. So water is a very technocratic space in the sense that understanding the way we manage it requires um, science and engineering, as well as um, an understanding of policy and, and bureaucracy. Um, and those are just for the people in government trying to figure it out, let alone the people whose job it is to work with water on a daily basis. Yeah, they're, they're, um, um, it's, it's not just the MDBA produce um, quite a lot, I think probably several thousand pages of reports each year uh, from our uh, examination. Um, but yep. it's, it's many others as well. The the Royal the South Australian Royal Commission, for example, was about seven hundred pages. Um, uh, there was a Productivity Commission report which was about four hundred and fifty, um, yep. and um, the various environmental water holders also um, are, are in that space, um, uh, producing quite a lot of paper. Do, do you get to read all these? I have to confess, I do not read all of them um, because, as you say, there is there are a lot of reports coming out and it's not just the final reports, but there are interim reports and issues papers that really try and set the scene for the, for the final report. So um, I think like many operators in this space, I try and stay across the theme that each report is covering and to try and make sense of the connections between the issues. Um, some reports I pay very close attention to. So, for instance, the Matthews report um, on the unlawful use of water um, mm. in the Murray-Darling Basin. That was something I read with a very fine-tooth comb. Um, but, yes, it's it's going to be varied. Mm. Well, um, how do you think an ordinary person would go? And I'm thinking of, um, you know, irrigators and farmers and people who, have, who work in agriculture um, and have an interest in water, but how would they go trying to digest this information? Genuinely, yeah, genuinely, I think it would be really hard. So um, I feel oftentimes quite overwhelmed by the sheer volume of material which is out there, and that is my day job 
should be across it and to understand it um, for people who, yeah, who already have a day job um, and farming and irrigating is incredibly demanding, to find the time to do this in their downtime would be very difficult. Um, I really feel for people um, who are seeing these reports come down and seeing the potential impact that these programs could have on their daily lives and it would be a struggle to try and figure out which of these many reports do I need to pay attention to right now. Mm. Yeah, and uh, quite a few of them, of course, are scientific and um, technical reports um, and not quite so much in the policy space. Um, and I'm thinking of the MDBA, they, they publish quite a lot of information. Mm. Yes, yes. And I think there's, yeah, there are, I think the level of water literacy is very varied. So there will be a lot of people who will be able to pick up those reports and um, and be able to make sense of them. They've been in this space for, for decades and they'll be able to, to understand what's being said. Um, but there are a lot of people who will really struggle um, and there are a lot of organisations who may lack that capacity um, and for whom the, the decisions that are being made as a result of those reports will have very significant impact, um, both on their livelihood but also and their rights and interests. So irrigators, but also First Nations organisations um, across the Murray-Darling Basin, um, there is really varying organisational capacity um, for First Nations people and so their capacity to engage um, and respond to this mountain of reports is, yeah, is particularly challenged. Yeah, the um, and speaking of response, um, I, we, I note that the ACCC report uh, has uh, really uh, only given uh, stakeholders mm, a month to um, to read, digest, and submit their response to the uh, the water trading report, um, which seems a bit tough uh, considering that the ACCC has been working on it for eleven months, and <laughs> and then we've only got got a short time to respond. Yeah, yeah, it is a, it is a tight time frame. Um, again, I, I can have sympathy for the ACCC who are meeting, trying to meet their own internal timelines, but yeah, it, it sends a signal um, about the, the level of engagement that they can reasonably expect from people within that kind of tight time frame and for such a very long report. Um, so I think it, it does start to open up questions around the, the overall purpose and value of this kind of engagement with the community um, and whether it's genuinely building understanding and engagement or whether it's um, just overwhelming and becomes a, a kind of barrier to people feeling like they can actively participate in these very important discussions. Mm. Yeah. The, um, just to take the um, the just to, to look at the um, things from the uh, from the authorities. Uh, Point of view, um, there must it's it's not necessarily a conspiracy that drives this. Uh, it's not a, to, to to deluge us with reports. Um, is there what could be driving the um, the, uh, the the development and creation of these multiple of reports? What could be behind the, the reason? To, what are they trying to satisfy? Do you think? So I think there is a, a genuine commitment to transparency and accountability and community engagement. So at the heart of it, there is this desire to make sure that the evidence and the, the thinking behind policy decisions is available for people to understand and to interrogate and to respond to. So I think at its core, it's coming from, it's coming from a very good place. 
Um, but I think one of the things that's possibly lacking is um, a sense of what is actually happening as a result of, of all of these efforts. So that mm. commitment is there and that genuine desire to engage with the public is, is there and it's really driving the release of all of these various reports. But what it comes down to, I think, is um, the need for a little bit more strategic thinking around what is a functional community engagement program that actively supports and enhances community participation in policy making and decision making, um, rather than leaving the onus on communities to try and find the time and the expertise to analyse, yes, as you say, hundreds of pages of reports um, at an extraordinarily frequent rate. So for me, it really starts to raise questions about the role of government um, and the way in which we want policy decisions and policies themselves to be made. So I think there's the community engagement side of things at the moment is acting a little bit more like um, an outsourcing of, of a process to elicit community feedback rather than a genuine, um, we really want to understand what the community's concerns and interests and issues are. And this is not a critique of any of the individual bureaucrats engaged in the process because I think they're under incredible time pressures. But I think as an academic, it's something that I would like to be able to do is to say, well, let's take a step back and look across at all of these different reports and processes that are happening and what's the message that is being sent here about the nature of community involvement in, in democracy and in policy making. Mm. So do you, do you think that there's a, a, a role or there's a need for some sort of body like a, like a, a, the government to take a, a, an overall look at what's going on and, and, and work out a, a better engagement approach in terms of um, you know, getting feedback on all of these different um, outputs? Yeah, I think, I think there is a, a need to just um, to reconsider the strategy um, a little bit more effectively. Um, so when we think about um, kind of the theory of, of governance and policy making, there are really quite sort of two ends of the spectrum um, around what we expect from governments. And, and at one end is the idea that, that kind of that governments will, will know best, that they will be able to figure out what the interests are of all of the various community members and they'll be able to take those into account when they produce their policies. Um, so that's that's kind of a paternalistic model of government, um, but it does say that it's the job of government to actively go out and understand what its constituents are saying, not based on just tell us what you want, but actively having processes that support that. At the other end of the spectrum um, is a governance process which is more about saying, let's just hear from everybody and then our job is to try and um, facilitate that, that competition between the various competing interests and um, competing rights in a policy sphere. So what you get then is lots of people pushing their own agenda in a very forceful way and then emerging from that becomes policy. At that point, government is quite a passive participant in that process and it's really about individuals um, being able to fight for their own policy outcomes. 
So that's not a particularly comfortable space to be in either. Um, now, those in, are the ends of the spectrum. Um, most often what you have is a government operating somewhere in the middle. Mm. But I think one of the things that we need to ask ourselves, and particularly policymakers need to ask themselves, is what kind of engagement with the community are we actually facilitating? Um, because at the moment, um, lots and lots of reports that require submissions um, are shifting us into that space of let's just let the competing interests fight it out amongst themselves. Mm. Um, and that's not a terribly helpful place for something as complex as water. Um, and it also means that the strongest voice, the person who's got access to the right kind of expertise and who can pay people to be constantly on call to write those kinds of responses, will be heard much more clearly um, than ordinary people who have a day job um, and who are trying to just keep up. So, again, that's like this is not an intentional outcome, but if that's where we've ended up, then that's a that's something I think that government as a whole does start to really need to think about in terms of what their engagement strategies are actually delivering. Um, we don't want to go back to the point where um, the government doesn't do any engagement, but I think it, it does need to think very carefully about how it's doing that and how it's facilitating and enabling communities to express their concerns but not making that a burden on people. Um, and there's lots of different models. So one model is obviously send all the information out and then let people make of it what they will, which feels very much like what we've got now. Mm. Um, another model is to try and work with communities on an ongoing basis. Um, so you might have citizens' juries or community groups which, are, um, which have longevity and are continually connected into both communities and government processes as a direct conduit for advice and insight um, and that can go both ways. So facilitating that kind of arrangement might be more of a um, – and there are, there are those kinds of arrangements in place already. But, yeah, I think we it's a good time to sort of pause and reflect and go, wow, we are actually asking a lot of people yeah. to try and stay on top of this information. It, so how do we make that easier? Is this – situation unique to the water industry, do you think? Or is this something that's happening perhaps broader in the, across the community? So that's a really good question. Um, it's certainly, it's quite broad. Um, so I think there is a, a genuine tendency for, for governments to use this kind of model as a, a particularly as a first step in um, engaging on a whole range of different issues. And Making that information available and public is a really, that's a really important thing to do um, for transparency and all kinds of outcomes. But yeah, it certainly does shift the onus onto communities to try and keep up with what's happening in their sector. Um, I think you tend to see this kind of outcome happen in sectors where there is a direct impact on a large um, population of individuals. So health and education would be a couple of other sectors where mm. you see the same kinds of um, high levels of reports um, and very high levels of community engagement because very large numbers of people are intersecting with those policy spheres. And I think water is, is, has become um, a sphere like that over the last probably 30 years or so. Um, mm. Yeah, I think 
it's it's not alone, um, <laughs> and it's yeah, it's drawing it intersects with so many other policy spheres as well. So water obviously intersects with food security and rural and regional communities, and yeah, all kinds of other um, policies as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time now. Um, Thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Erin O'Donnell from Melbourne University. I appreciate your input into this um, issue on the in the water industry. Thanks, thanks for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me.